This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. By words about reading the Scriptures, about preaching the Scriptures, and about the mission on which the Scripture sends all of us, we here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Pastor Willie Grills here with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi, and our guest today is Pastor Adam Kuntz. We are talking about the work of the evangelist and evangelism. How's it going, guys? Great. Great to be with you. Yep. I'm excited to get into this topic because I think it's one that touches all of us pretty near and dear to our hearts. Absolutely. Every pastor desires to see more people, more non-believers come to the faith, more wayward sheep come back into the sheepfold. For the three of us, it's it's interesting because we are all involved in missions or church planning in some way. Right, gentlemen? We are. I am an adult convert to Christianity, so this is very near and dear to me without the ministry both of living witnesses and also witnesses who left their witness to Christ in books that I read. I I wouldn't be here, so this is very important to me. And in my work at Mount Calvary, not only do I like to stress uh, conversion growth, the bringing of people, not only from other Christian churches, but from no belief whatsoever to professing faith in Christ. We're doing that at Mount Calvary and also at the church plant. We have going Concordia Lutheran missions. So this is this is very highly important to me. In fact, I would say it's probably the thing about which I'm most passionate. And I, I am a cradle Lutheran. I'm not an adult convert. But I am uh, also very passionate about this because I serve in North Dakota as a full-time missionary planting a church up in the oil patch in North Dakota. And uh, it's been a very, well, it's, it's a great experience to, to be able to, to meet people and to see people who come to become a part of the church. So yeah, it's, it's also an a important subject of mine as well. And I come to Christianity uh, beyond adolescence, just like Reverend Kuntz. And I am the pastor of La Iglesia Luterana Amigos in Cristo, so um, Friends in Christ Evangelical Lutheran Church, a Spanish mission in western Iowa that primarily reaches out to Hispanic immigrants who work in the meatpacking industry. So again, reaching out to people who oftentimes have not heard the gospel or people who might have a church background uh, different than Lutheranism. Uh, but it is very much a mission setting and requires a lot of uh, evangelism, a lot of outreach and those sorts of things. So here we are, here we sit, we're all planting new Lutheran churches and missions in the United States. A lot of people would say the United States is a Christian nation, and it's very true in a historical sense. But today, uh, just as in any time in the United States history, there are plenty of wayward Christians, there are lost sheep, and there are plenty of people in need of conversion. In reality, the United States of America is a ripe mission field. Would you agree? I totally agree. I mean, Jesus tells us to pray the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into the harvest. So Jesus's sense for humanity in the time between his resurrection and ascension and his second coming is that humanity is now ripe for the harvest. Apart from that, I think what you say about the United States is absolutely on target, that both the native-born population has experienced secularization similar to what's happened in Northern and Western Europe since the Second World War, 
and the large immigrant population that has entered the United States since 1965 also is largely either unevangelized, only nominally Christian, or altogether non-Christian, professing some other religion. So the opportunities are numerous pretty much all over the United States, even in places like where I live, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is sometimes called the Bible Belt of the East Coast for its number of churches. We even have mega churches here. Nonetheless, uh, estimates are that the town that I live in, for instance, conservative as it is, about 80% of people are not going to church on any given Sunday morning. So there's plenty of work to be done wherever you live. And we also believe, certainly at a word fitly spoken, that the work is given not only to all Christians, but especially to all ministers of the gospel. Everyone is commissioned by Jesus to do the work of an evangelist. Right. And Zellin, you want to describe your demographic a little bit too in North Dakota? Well, I kind of have a, an unusual demographic because I deal with very, two very different groups of people. In the, the mother church that I serve, the one that I'm of, officially in, if you will, uh, is mostly kind of ranching and, and farming kind of, of people, kind of very salt of the earth, down to earth kind of people that have been here for several generations. Those kinds of people are, are important to reach out to as well because, you know, they are very much people for whom Christ died. But the other group of people that I, I try to reach out to are what we might call roughnecks, uh, the kind of people <laughs> who are here really only for the money that can be made. They typically spend very long hours uh, working in the oil field as well. And so uh, reaching out to these people can be very difficult, if only because it's hard to get a hold of them, um, because they work, you know, 12 hours at a time for days on end before they have a couple days off. So it's it has its own unique challenges, but I think it's important to see that, you know, this is still the place that I have been sent to work. And this is my my field in which I the, the Lord has sent me to labor. Absolutely. And you're going to find these people who we need to preach to in any part of the of the globe. And specifically as we're talking about in the United States of America from Maine down to the Appalachians, all the way down to Florida, all the way to California, up into the Dakotas and beyond. The work is there, and we need laborers for said work. One of the necessities of evangelism is ministers, something that's often forgotten. We live in an age where lay evangelism programs are very popular. They sell a lot of books, and they have admirable goals. At the same time, we forget the means by which God has um, decreed his gospel would be spread. Now, it will be spread by private witness between Christians, laymen or clergy, whatever. But God has ordained specific men for the task of preaching, and those men we call pastors. I would say that, first of all, it's important that pastors understand that evangelism is not for them not for their vocation, not for anything that they do as pastors. It is not an option. It is optional if you are a minister of the gospel, if you would like to sign up to serve in the army chaplaincy or to become a chaplain for your local police department. It is optional if you want to introduce, you know, more ceremonies or you want to remove some ceremonies within your church's liturgical calendar. Those are those are options. It's optional if you want to wear red on Palm Sunday or 
purple or, or violet. Maybe I'm not using the correct uh, liturgical. Uh, I, I, I'm never I'm never sure which box of Crayola crayons I'm supposed to be using when I'm talking about <laughs> or which liturgical book to consult, colors. Right? Yeah, so I use I use red and purple because people know what those are. <laughs> so in any case, th- those are all optional things. But Jesus says to his apostles as he is about to ascend to the Father's right hand, you will be my witnesses, right? And the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in his second letter, do the work of an evangelist. So these are both command forms. And you can fudge that as much as you want and say, well, we get to do it. It's still at the end of the day, a command. It's not an option. It's no more an option than preaching the gospel or uh, stewarding the mysteries of God or shepherding the flock of God, which is among you. And the, the reality is, if the pastor doesn't do this, if the pastor is not concerned for winning souls to Christ by the proclamation of the law and the gospel, if that's not happening, he cannot expect the people to do so either. So there, there really is no church that works well at evangelism, works well at this task, which is not led by a pastor who himself is diligent in this task. Right. Hold up, hold up. It's almost as if you're saying that the pastor is both example and leader to a congregation. Am I hearing you correctly? Uh, yes, sir. I, I am <laughs> saying that. And I'm taking that directly out of Scripture. You know, Paul is Paul is telling people to imitate him, and he's saying that Timothy imitates me so well that when you you know I send Timothy to Corinth, you're going to be able to see what to do because you're going to be able to look at Timothy. So imitation is part of this and leadership is part of this. And those are not bad words. Those are very scriptural words. The pastor is guiding. He is showing. He is pioneering things that he needs disciples to do. In the same way that Jesus combines both being an exemplar and a teacher with his disciples just so does the pastor operate with his flock. He both models and teaches what he needs them to believe and to do. Well said. So evangelism then, inherent to the pastoral call. Do you think that there is a lack of emphasis, and this is to both of you, on evangelism today in some circles? And if so, why? I do think that there is a lack of emphasis and among some circles, perhaps out of fear, Maybe because, you know, evangelism isn't always the easiest thing. You have to go talk to people that are not going to be necessarily receptive to your message, people that you don't know, people who are well outside of your usual circles, and that can be intimidating. And so I think we tend to either downplay its importance or to minimize how much we do it, or even to try to, uh, uh, I guess you would say, imagine that we do it in other ways that aren't really connected with the task. Yeah, I would I would also say that I think primarily for two reasons pastors neglect evangelism. I the first is that if they are not in prayer for people's souls within their congregation they already have, they will not be in prayer for the souls of people who are not currently in their flock. So if the pastor neglects intercessory prayer both for the church and for the world, you know, apart from, let's say, the prayer of the church within the Sunday liturgy. If he's neglecting that, then evangelism will not come to be any kind of priority for him because the lost are not on his mind. 
those who are sheep without a shepherd are not on his mind. If he's in prayer, if he's praying for souls, then the idea that every single human being he encounters is someone for whom Christ has shed his blood will be much more real and apparent and urgent to him. And so that's connected to kind of the second reason. I think the second reason is I just don't think we take seriously the urgency with which Christ seeks the lost. I, I really, I really don't think, I, I think that we exercise, you know, like Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are both about atheists, right? Technically, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, but the fool is known through a kind of practice of atheism, right? It's not, you know, it's not, he's not Richard Dawkins writing books or something, right? Right. He's not wearing a fedora sharing uh, what he sees as dank memes on the internet, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you will, right? So that you could call that a practical atheism, right? Scripture is very concerned about practical atheism. I think a lot of us are practical universalists. On paper, we would say, yes, God does not save all. Yes, salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Yes, you must trust in Christ for salvation. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We would say all of that on paper, right? But in practice, if you do not evangelize, what you are saying is, in practice, that really doesn't matter, right? I affirm all of that. It's in the Bible. That's all great. But in practice, I will not use the means of God's word to call the lost to himself. Right. Um, to back up to the prayer point for a minute, everything begins with, with prayer. Everything is bathed in prayer. Why do we pray for the lost? For the simple fact that salvation is the work of God, and it is God who gives the increase. And we certainly affirm that, right? Yeah. And it's, it's like, if we actually believe that God wants to save the lost, why would we not be praying about it constantly? Right. And we know that God answers our prayers. And certainly a prayer like that, God is inclined to answer. And two, that prayer emboldens the minister to go out and proclaim because it is not up to the eloquence of the minister, although we are going to get into skills and suitability for the task. But we believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is there to convert people and to turn them from darkness unto light. In prayer is part of the answer to any any uh, fear of going out and witnessing. I just wanted to also point out, I mean, you make some very good points about prayer as well, but if we take seriously what Paul has to say in Romans, for example, that faith cometh by hearing and, you know, how can they come to believe without someone preaching and how, you know, how blessed are the feet of those uh, who preach the good news, that all speaks to us as ministers, I mean, in Christians generally, but especially ministers, that this is not something that just kind of happens all on its own. Yes, we need to be concerned about this because this is our task. This is the thing that we have been sent to do. Well, and that's then that's where we're building towards with the prayer discussion is that God does not accomplish things apart from the means that he has established. So what is the answer to God's or to the prayer to God, which asks, Lord, save these unbelievers. What is the answer to that prayer? His sending someone who preaches the good news. And pastors and those, you know, those put into the office of those put into the teaching and preaching office are God's answer to that prayer. Yeah. Are we going to be uh, Jonah or are we going to be Isaiah? <laughs> right. Effective either way. Uh, <laughs> but, that is, but that is an introspective question for the pastor, I suppose. 
I, I, I think too often we, we are neither, Zelwyn. I think I think too often we are we're neither Isaiah nor Jonah. We're just silent. We're we're Has, we're Hasmoneans, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we are we are nothing. I mean we are I mean we're not we're not even we're not even a clashing symbol. We're just not making any noise on this front. We are not I mean, I think I think we think that our job is done with the gospel if we have, you know, crammed it into an eleven-minute uh, non-expository sermon on a Sunday morning and then called it good. You know, I think I think we think we're done at that point, and 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 if that's how we think, then we have a fearful judgment awaiting us because Paul is so fervent about this that he says. Woe to me if I preach not the gospel. And I don't think he's referring just to what happens on Sunday morning. Sure, sure. I mean, and then, you know, to echo, you know, James chapter three, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we you teach will be judged more strictly. There is a gravity to the task. Yeah, yeah. And if you're taking if you're taking it on yourself and you don't want to pray and you don't want to be diligent, not only in studying you know, not only in digging into Hebrew and Greek, not only in doing the academic work, and, you know, we can talk about our academic qualifications on this podcast, but it's not really germane to the work of ministry, because the work of ministry is not merely knowing a lot of things. It is proclaiming God's word to sinners. And if you can't get excited about that, if you can't get worked up for that, if you're not diligent about that, then it's kind of like, what are you doing here in the first place? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that that is a fair question. What motivates the minister? Is it a desire to serve the Lord faithfully according to the task given to pastors in the scripture? Or is it or is it a desire to serve, you know, family or belly or something else? Right. Yeah. And I, I've got a seminary professor. Well, we, we, we all did who when he was in seminary had a very kind of odd, offbeat, hippie ish professor himself who had them make some. So I think they had to make a baptismal font. And they were making this baptismal font out of this stump of wood. And the father of one of his classmates came out and saw them doing this. And the, the father was himself a diligent evangelist. And they said, well, here we are. Professor so-and-so has us making this baptismal font out of this stump of wood. And the father, the diligent evangelist, looked at them and he just said, how's that going to win souls for Jesus? <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's just about one of the best questions you could ask yourself about how you're spending your time. How's that going to win souls for Jesus? So. Right, right. And, um, you know, we get, we get caught in this, um, in these different fads of, of the church. And really sometimes um, evangelism, as we were talking about, it becomes sort of passe in uh current practical theology, right? And uh, But it can't. We're talking about something that's universal from the beginning of the church until now, the need to proclaim the gospel um, to everyone and seeking to to turn everyone from their sin and uh, toward the gospel, toward salvation found only in Christ Jesus. So we're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about um, why now Evangelism is especially necessary. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history www.wordfitlyspoken.org 
www.ghostsofthecoast.org. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Pastor Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and Adam Kuntz talking about evangelism and evangelists. We live in a very interesting time. Evangelism has always been a necessity, but evangelism is particularly necessary now for a variety of reasons. So guys, let's just dive right in here. Yeah, I think that a lot of Christians, especially if they think of America as a still Christian nation, assume a sort of uh, permutation of the state church system. So within a state church, one, what Americans would call denomination, has a religious monopoly. There may be other groups that are allowed to exist, such as happened in England, or maybe they are not allowed to exist in any kind of official capacity, public capacity, uh, such as in many Lutheran territories and pretty much any Roman Catholic country. Within that religious monopoly, the minister really does not need to be an evangelist because he's got a stable population of people who will continue coming to his church regardless. And I think for a lot of American history, and certainly for groups like the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that targeted you know, certain ethnicities, if you simply put yourself in the midst of enough people of basically just the right kind, you would have a church. Right. And this has been something that's been very good for us as far as church planting historically, but it's also been detrimental in certain circles as far as evangelism. In many ways, the Lutheran church, especially, let's say, early, mid, late 1800s onward in America has been seen as an ethnic church similar to Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, or certain other groups. And it it worked really well because you could go to some town, say in Iowa, North Dakota, whatever, wherever the circuit rider was going and say, hey, who speaks German? And then you would say what? Okay, we're having church at this time on this day, so show up. And while that has been good as far as bringing those people in, and it's, I mean, I'm, I'm really painting with broad strokes here talking about Germans because, as Reverend Heidi can attest, we've had plenty of uh, the Scandinavian flavor too. Absolutely. But you don't see a lot of Scots-Irish Lutheran churches for this reason. You know, you don't see a lot of uh, Cornish Lutheran churches, for example, for this reason. Well, those are those are very disagreeable people <laughs> anyway, so we don't want them. Right. Yeah, we don't want those. They're, they're too, they're too hard-edged. That's not a bad thing to go and gather these people because it is perfectly natural and the goal is perfectly admirable. But we cannot look at the gospel and even the Lutheran church as far insofar as what she teaches as merely an expression of a certain Euro people group. That this gospel then is for for everyone. And now since we have moved beyond the period of assimilation for these initial groups that we reached out to. They have now been thoroughly Americanized. We don't have the opportunity to just go to some village and say, hey, German speakers come here. Now we really have to do the task of evangelism in many ways, much more similarly than what we see in the scriptures, where we're going to go into a place and then proclaim uh, and just really, really start from scratch. 
I mean, I would say that the early Missouri Synod is in some ways exemplary in the fervency with which many people pursued the lost. You know, they they definitely had a target group of German speakers to the extent that when English speakers wanted to join the Missouri Synod, they were encouraged to form and did form their own synod. So that that you know that's that's a strategy, but they were they were very fervent in finding German speakers and convincing them, you know, not to be Methodists, not to be Roman Catholics, whatever it may be. I th- oh, right. That's the that's the beauty of the early Missouri Synod is when we look at what we were publishing. What kind of what did the articles talk about? It was persuading people to believe rightly and and to live rightly, but mostly, you know, here is what the scriptures teach and this is what you ought to believe. Almost exclusively, this is what our our writing focused on, whether it was in German or English. I think the big difference is that the Christian gospel has no particular cultural authority. It even has a negative right. cultural valence, which was generally not the case in the 19th and even the 20th century. So we're facing a situation which is sort of unprecedented for us, but not unprecedented for the Bible. Right. Let's say the German and Scandinavian immigrants were a stable population to plant a Lutheran church. And I say that without any negativity or animosity. These were people who who oftentimes would have known our doctrine and our catechesis, and sometimes didn't, but nevertheless, they were a stable population to build churches and to plant churches. We no longer have that when we look at modern church planting. I think it's also just important to stress, and 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 if you are listening to this and you are you are a Lutheran minister, you probably know these things already. You probably even know statistics that I can't recall off the top of my head. But I think it's important to stress that evangelism is existential for us at this point, not simply as a strategy for keeping any particular denomination alive, but simply as a way for the church to continue existing in this place. And one of our concerns here at Word Fitly Spoken is that American Christians care most about evangelism in America, not as a kind of stupid chauvinism, but simply because if we don't care about America, we have no right to expect Australians or Tanzanians or Russians to care more about America than we do, or to know better how to evangelize our own people than we do. And this is a time which is, as I said a little bit earlier, unprecedented. It's a time in which funding and resources and people are fleeing away from pretty much every American denomination. The largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, is at a 70-year low for conversions as they measure those, which is via baptism for them. So this is not just a problem for Lutherans. It's an existential problem for Christianity in the United States. Yeah, so what are we facing here? Um, primarily, a uh, simply a population decline. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when you look at the statistics for church bodies, when a lot of the people listening would look at the demographics for, let's say, just their congregation, the only parallel that you could find as far as, you know, average and median age or birth rate, the only comparable thing would be, you know, a population immediately upon the end of a major war. Um, Not even modern Japan or Russia are quite as old or quite as infertile as most American denominations. 
And Japan, or I mean, excuse me, and Russia has literally had uh, decades of Soviet famine um, in recent memory. <laughs> right, exactly. And so we we are being decimated from within. The mo- the clearest biblical response to that is not simply to you know build a fortress and stay within it and hope that we weather the storm. The biblical response is for the church to be active in evangelism. Right. So in order to go from 12 souls who are terrified of what's going to happen to them for fear of the Jews, I, I'm, I'm including Matthias kind of proleptically, <laughs> to go from those 12 who are commissioned by Jesus to 3,000 does not happen simply by them just staying within their walls and you know proclaiming the gospel to each other. It happens through evangelism. That's how God achieves what looks impossible to us. So that's the urgency both now for Christians in America and the urgency that I, I know that you can hear as you listen to this podcast. I also want to point out that, you know, we, there is, I mean, of course, a real population decline going on. So, I mean, there are just generally fewer people. But I almost wonder, and maybe Adam, you can comment on this, whether we use that as kind of an excuse to wall up. We do, because every excuse is easier than actually finding and calling people to Christ. Every excuse is easier. Yeah, it avoids any semblance of awkwardness or any risk of uh, what would be perceived as failure. That's right. Yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing hazarded, nothing lost is usually the, uh, the motto here. Right. So um, are you saying the Benedict option is not an option? The Benedict option is completely unbiblical. It's it's utterly unbiblical. And it's also just historically uninformed. Just for listeners, that's that's this idea put out by the columnist Rod Dreher, who is a member of a different liturgical church every five seconds, so I can't tell you what he is right now. I think he's Eastern Orthodox. Don't quote me on that. But it's this idea that like Benedict in late antiquity, we can retreat into various places and create beautiful Christian communities and thereby weather the collapse of Western civilization. That ignores the fact that the Germanic and Gothic tribes were protecting said monastics from the Muslim onslaught of Southern Europe. And so somebody's activity always has to be present in order to protect the faith. We're not talking about you know, withstanding Muslim hordes militarily, not in this podcast anyway. Uh, right. Well, these guys, <laughs> right. We'll these, get to that later. It's like these guys have read uh, Canticle <laughs> for Leibowitz, great novel, but then they went full LARP with it. They did. Yeah. Yeah. And they think, they think somehow it's real. The real thing that really happened in the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit recorded for us, is that the church went from fear to joy and from 12 to 3,000 by preaching the gospel. Yeah, the apostles preach in spite of the threat from the Jews. And that fear is eventually overwhelmed by this urgency of the task. And it's overwhelmed by the truth of Jesus Christ, uh, the veracity of the gospel, and the zeal that accompanies that faith. And this idea that we could, you know, just retreat into our own stronghold, you know, going with the Benedict option doesn't even take seriously what happened in church history itself. I mean, you have coming out of the same time period, some of the greatest evangelists of all time, like, you know, St. Patrick or St. Boniface or any of those going into very difficult situations, even while civilization was collapsing. So I don't think we have any real excuse 
to say, oh, the sky is falling and think that we don't have to, to go on with our task. Right. It, it, oftentimes a retreat in the community um, is seen as kind of like a doomsday prepper, uh, strength through strength through means kind of thing, strength through preparation. Uh, when the reality is it becomes like Linus and his blanket or a child with his pacifier. It is a, it, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a thing that only exists for the sake of comfort. And not necessarily worldly comfort at that, but a comfort, you know, in those familiar things and in those safe things. But for a lot of church history, evangelism and witnessing has not been safe. But in those places where it hasn't been safe to preach the gospel, the gospel has spread and borne the most fruit. Yeah, and I mean, if you if you think, and and I think people often do. I mean, I think practical universalism is really only possible if you take the gospel for granted. If you think that you are a Christian apart from someone's evangelistic work, if you are of German descent and don't know what Boniface did for the Germans or you are Irish and don't know what Patrick did for the Irish, although that seems scarcely possible, <laughs> or you are you are Cornish and whatever nameless uh, poor person had to go there, um, <laughs> and you don't know what that nameless poor person had to do for those horrible people. It's St. Piran, by the way. It's St. Piran. Oh, well, a household <laughs> name. I, can't, I don't know why I forgot that. <laughs> if, if you don't understand that you and your faith are the result whether in your lifetime or someone else's, of someone's incredibly difficult evangelistic work, then you just don't know how Christianity is actually spread. It's always spread through evangelism. There really is sincerely no other option. Right. If you want a church that's spread almost solely through genealogy, look to the Amish. Adam, I'm sure you can recommend some uh, parishes in your neck of the woods that people can join up. <laughs> and they, they, they don't do evangelism, and they actually generally reject converts because being Amish is pretty straightforwardly just an ethnic endeavor. I mean, Christianity is involved, but the preservation of the community is not simply for the purpose of Christianity. And, and usually when people leave the Amish, um, and we have an entire megachurch here in Lancaster County run by an ex-Amishman. They leave because they want to do evangelism, I think, I think rightly and biblically. So we've established that evangelism is necessary. The fortress mentality is not something that's feasible or sustainable or perhaps even biblical. It just straight isn't biblical. So when we come to Lutheranism in America, and by that, really, we just mean Christianity in America— it's not simply a case of revitalizing or, or regentrification of neighborhoods and parishes. In many ways, it is a case of re-evangelizing neighborhoods and replanting churches often. Yeah, missiologists will distinguish between revitalization, which is simply a congregation or a church body, which is plateaued in numbers or declining rather gradually. They'll distinguish that from replanting where death is more or less imminent unless some sort of drastic change is made, a drastic measures are taken. What we're describing tonight, the way that you think about it, whether demographically or spiritually, is a case of replanting, finding a fire and a drive and a devotion that we have not had for a very long time, maybe in some of our own careers uh, as ministers in, in our time, in our service, we have never personally had. We're asking you to consider over this and the next few podcasts 
to think about what you can do to dedicate yourself to this task, uh, what your congregation can do. If you are a layman, what you can do in conjunction with uh, your pastor and throughout your congregation to make sure that the gospel is heard by as many people as possible, as often as possible, and that this is the great and high work to which the church has always been called and to which the church must now wake up lest it perish here in America. And this evangelism is not only for urban centers or reaching out into the suburbs, as um, the gurus used to say. This is for every part of the United States of America, from the prairies to the badlands to wherever, tiny towns, even completely rural missions. This this principle is effective, or at least this principle is is not limited to a particular region or city, or type of person. Yeah, I mean, if you just want to use my own situation as an example, I live in one of the least populated parts of the country, period. That doesn't change the fact that I've still been sent to proclaim the gospel to these people. Even if I have to drive 20 miles between houses, <laughs> uh, It's these are still people for whom Christ died. This is still the task that I've been set to do. And just because, you know, there's distance involved or just because there is some sort of you know hardship involved doesn't make the the work any less important and you know there could be the pastor listening to this who is in a place that he doesn't want to be a place that he doesn't like it doesn't have what he wants for a variety of reasons hey maybe uh there's not a chipotle or a taco bell for 25 miles or 100 miles or a thousand miles but 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 willie what if there are no brew pubs there (laughs) whatever will we do what if can't get any craft beers there. Right. What, what then, sir? <laughs> yes, the, uh, the the gastronomic missional principle of the lost chapter of Acts, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, what will we do? How then shall we live, <laughs> to, to quote Francis? To quote Uncle Francis, gentlemen, God has put you there. God has divinely called you to that place, whether it's difficult or easy to live there. And whether you're in a place you hate or a place you love and a place you never want to leave or a place you want to get out of immediately, your call is there and to those people. And the task is the same. The task is the same, although it looks a little different for every pastor, regardless of where he is. Sometimes you'll find yourself being very comfy. Other times you'll find yourself being like Jonah, who doesn't want to go where he's sent and doesn't enjoy the people that he's preaching to. But nevertheless, what does he do? He proclaims the message that God has given him, and uh, he sees the fruit thereof, of his fidelity. Another break, we'll be right back, and we're going to talk about the task of evangelism, the work of evangelism proper, and how we go about that. You're listening to Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. 
Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi, Adam Coons talking about evangelism. So we've talked about uh, some of the societal factors of evangelism, the necessity of evangelism, and now we're going to dig into the work of evangelism and the evangelist proper. So where do you guys want to jump off on this? Yeah, I think the first place to start is with something that we've said already, both in the Gerberding podcasts and elsewhere, that the ministry and therefore also evangelism within the minister's work is a blue-collar job. It's not nebulous. It's not really actually all that uncertain. It's not easy, but it is simple. It is clear. You are a fisher of men. So if you think about evangelism as a task, that's probably the most helpful way, especially if you're not in the regular habit of doing it. It's the most helpful way to think about starting to do it and to keep doing it and to get better at it is thinking of it as a task in the same way that you think about preaching or visiting people or teaching a Bible study as tasks. You either do them or you don't do them. You learn how to do it better or you don't. It's just a task. It may be an unfamiliar one, but it's a necessary one. It's not an optional one. You need to do it and you can get better at it if you feel uncomfortable with the idea right now. Right. And when we when we talk about evangelism as blue collar and really the ministry is a blue collar job, that isn't to say that pastors aren't educated or any of this stuff, but what we're saying is you get your hands dirty. You are down working doing the nuts and bolts of the ministry. And you're with your people and the work is often uh, gritty and the work is often without glory and the work is often not easy as in with any blue collar profession. But the reward is greater. It's analogous to the guy with his liberal arts degree who's making fun of uh, the diesel mechanic who's going to trade school. Okay, the diesel mechanic is going to come home with his hands dirty and everything, but he's going to be bringing home a lot more than the guy, you know, who got the uh, art history degree and who's a part time barista and collects broken crayons in the off season. <laughs> and Zelwyn um, so, has a lot of baristas out his way. Maybe he could speak to yeah, that. Exactly. At so many coffee shops. <laughs> right. And so, yes, while there often isn't worldly prestige to the task, uh, the reward is, is great. And now that reward doesn't mean that you're going to get 3000 converts a la acts and you're going to take them down to the city reservoir because that's the only place with enough water to baptize them as we see um, in the book. But the reward is the reward for doing work worth doing. And ultimately the ward, the uh, reward for the faithful pastor is that commendation from the father himself. Yeah. We shouldn't look at evangelism is something that's going to get us praise among men. Uh, many times it's going to, like you said, going to be very thankless work. But if we are doing what our Father uh, in heaven has commanded us to do, then we are looking for his commendation and his reward that he gives us. And frankly, that's all that really matters. So then, how do we go about doing this? Um, there is that initial aversion to the task that many might have. Yeah, I think a place to start is, first of all, to think about relationships that you already have with people you know are not Christians. That may be family, that may be friends. You're going to work on those people. After that, you want to schedule this the way you schedule time to prepare a sermon, schedule time for meetings, schedule time to be with your family. 
Well, let's uh, let's let's pause for just a second. The reason why we're saying family and friends, you know, is that kind of initial dipping your your toes into this is because that sometimes can be the least awkward uh, thing for a lot of people. Yeah, it can, and it and it can also be more awkward depending upon the dynamic. It I does. Suppose. It does depend. It's also a good place to test your sense of urgency. How much does this matter to you? If you are okay with seeing your family member perish eternally, you're probably going to be okay with seeing the part-time barista at Starbucks or whatever they have down at the, the, the rodeo clown. I'm trying to contextualize for the sake of our North Dakota <laughs> member. Fair enough. Yeah, there you go. If, you, if you're okay with seeing family not know Christ, probably going to be okay with seeing lots of other people not know Christ. So it's also sort of a good litmus test for yourself. Are you willing to witness to these things to family members? Well, it is an interesting phenomenon that we are often very eager to fund foreign missions and to see those people far away hear the gospel. That's easier, though, for us because that's something that we can financially support or support in prayer without actually having to go and see those people face to face. It is a different task. Supporting foreign missions is a different task from local evangelism. And local evangelism, while logistically easier at times, is experientially much more difficult in many ways for the average pastor, simply because the pastor has to do it where he is. Yeah, and it's, I mean, just think about the shame and the and the, the horrible irony that People are sending thousands and, and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars so that someone can build a church or get more pastors or whatever it may be in a place all the way across the world. And people will fly there to see these things inaugurated and to see men ordained. And that is all fine and well. That's a good thing. But that those people would donate all that time and all that money and all that prayer and all that concern. And yet they do not evangelize the person who lives next door. They don't evangelize, you know, their, their Jewish dentist. You know, they are not teaching the people right next to them the gospel. That, that is horrible. That is so sad. Imagine if Paul had operated that way. If he just always, if he just sent money to Jerusalem and just sent prayers to Jerusalem and just sent his support to Jerusalem and did not also evangelize wherever he went, if he was not himself preaching in season and out of season. I mean, it's, it's incredibly sad that American Christians should fund so well the preaching of the gospel everywhere except America and should care so much about the mission of Christ everywhere except America. What a shame. So we, we don't want that to be the case for anybody who's listening to this. I, I would just, the, if, if you can take away one word, I would say just intentionality. If you schedule this time, if you pray to be open to these kind of situations, it's, you're going to be much more effective and fruitful than if you just think, oh, this might be a good idea if I did this. And so with the scheduling, that uh, essentially says that this needs to be a priority. Yeah, and you are seeking out opportunities wherever you may find them. So if you're in a small town, you know, go to the places where people congregate. Go to the football game. Go to the basketball game in the winter. Um, go to the places where people are talk to them. You're going to find non-Christians. Odds are 
at any point in American history, you're going to find non-Christians, no matter where you are. You need to be where people are who are not church members, who are not Christians, who have never opened the Bible. And, you know, think about, think about the way that the Lord talks about Christians. He talks about them as salt and light. Those are factors that affect their environment, but they're always related to their environment, right? He did not pray that he would take us out of this world so that we could exist in a world purely of Christian Facebook friends <laughs> and blogs and podcasts and conferences and symposia. And we could exist in a world where our biggest debates with people are about minor liturgical matters. Right. He prayed that we would be in the world, but not of the world, so that we could witness to him in the world. That is our chief concern. And with that being said, um, this time uh, with people isn't merely hanging out, or just, it's not only hanging out. It's not. I mean, we want to say, first of all, you got to be a human being. Right, right. You can't, I mean, Paul is going to the lengths of saying, I am a Jew to the Jews, I'm a Greek to the Greeks. Paul is going to lengths that we're not even saying you necessarily need to, because probably the people you're going to reach most effectively are going to be people who, in many ways, ethnically, socially, economically, even educationally, are a lot like you. And that's okay. That's very natural. That's the way that most evangelism happens if you look at the history of missions pretty much anywhere. So you don't, you don't necessarily have to change your entire lifestyle to do this, but you do have to be a human being. You have to be relatable. So, I mean, I'm saying this as an introvert, and I, I can tell you, like, if, if I had my druthers, if I were not a Christian, I would just sit in libraries and read books all day and find some way to get paid for it. That's what I would do. So this doesn't come, we're not talking about, oh, you just have an outgoing personality, so you just love to do this. We're talking about the command. Yeah, you're just gregarious. So yeah, you're, you're, just, this, you're yeah. just gregarious and you're just, you're just socially needy. No, we're saying you have to be with people, you have to make your eye contact, you have to not be a weirdo, but that is not yet the gospel. Yeah, there's a little <laughs> bit of, of these old manuals which say things like, comb your hair and, and bring breath mints. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, you have these uh, skills, uh, you know, you're going to be talking with people. So please, you know, be presentable, that kind of thing. Right. You have to be presentable. But because that is not yet the gospel and, and, and because that's often confused with the gospel, especially by millennial pastors, that just if you just hang out with people, if you're just cool, you exhibit a detailed knowledge of craft brews, they're going to like you and they're going to want to come to church. That's not the gospel. The gospel involves your thinking about these people, not simply as people to hang out with and not even as prospects, right? Like you desperately need them to come into your church to grow it. You're thinking of them as lost souls. You are there for them, not for you. Yeah, there's, there's, there, there is a bit of a disingenuous side to some planting and evangelism where you kind of ape whatever is hip or cool or whatever that look is supposed to be. And it's sort of this false modesty about trying to to be of the people when really it's just trying to be hip. And you bump into that a lot too. But when we say be a human being, we mean, you know, be yourself as in and so far as you can, but don't be, you know, overcome those things when you need to, but don't be don't be this kind of like false character. Yeah, because because people will see through it very easily. Absolutely. And, and because your your quote authenticity even if it's staged isn't the gospel. So you don't have right. to worry about that. 
Right. It doesn't depend upon your your. We talk about not depending on your eloquence a lot, but it also doesn't depend upon what beard oil you're using, or how nicely waxed your mustache is, or how square your tie knot is. To throw it back a little bit to D. James Kennedy era. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I knew I knew that we couldn't get through an entire discussion of evangelism without a nod to D. James Kennedy. So I'm glad that that was that that was in there. But I, I think it's also important to say, because a lot of pastors and definitely congregations have the misconception that if people are simply in proximity to Christians or are at a church function or the church has a street fair and the neighborhood shows up and is eating popcorn and running around, the kids are running around on the bouncy house, that that is also evangelism. Whereas evangelism is actually the communication of the gospel. So proximity is necessary. It's necessary individually. It's necessary congregationally. But proximity to non-Christians is not evangelism. The word of Christ also has to be spoken. Right, right. Um, The ministry of presence really is not enough, if indeed it's even a real thing. (laughs) It may be a unicorn. It's certainly a widely spotted unicorn ministry of presence, but it certainly wasn't sufficient for the apostles. They not only went places, they not only talked to people, but they spoke to them about Christ. I would say this just as a very basic way of talking about doing evangelism. And we'll go into some common objections, some common misconceptions, and some good ways of going about this very practically in future episodes. But just here's what I do when I'm doing this with people. And this has worked at different speeds in different relationships, right? Because some people are very far from thinking about the existence of a God in any kind of practical bearing on their life when you first talk to them. And there are other people who, when you begin a relationship with them, they are already thinking lots of very deep thoughts, lots of very kind of important thoughts about why am I here? What am I for? What do I do about the fact that I'm not the kind of person I want to be? So for all of those people at different speeds, you're going to present the idea that sin is the major problem with their life and that they have a savior from sin in Jesus Christ. So you tell the very basic story of the gospel. Why did Jesus have to die? For what purpose has Jesus risen? You tell that in terms contextualized within their life, right? So that they realize it with you know individual application what anyone listening to a sermon in a church on a sunday morning would hear which is that they are great sinners but christ is a greater savior well and that's the thing uh we have to understand um contextualization in a positive aspect because there's a point where contextualization just loses the essence of the message that being said we are often very guilty of speaking in terms that are known only to our click, for lack of a better word, or to our group. There's kind of a group speak that happens. And that's not sufficient for evangelizing people outside of the group. Word and sacrament, word and sacrament, word and sacrament, or whatever, fill in your, you know, fill in your term, right? I mean, it's, um, there are plenty. Sure. Maybe to use a slightly different metaphor, then um, we can't think of a ministry of presence or, you know, using these kinds of slogans as being like if if we're going to drive somewhere and we can get there by going in the wrong direction. 
you you can't get to a certain destination by taking the wrong road and imagine that you'll somehow magically jump over onto the right road somewhere down the line. No, you actually have to be intentional about what it is that we are doing. You know, one of the principles of the Reformation was the scripture in the vernacular, but we've almost reached the point where we have to present the gospel in the vernacular, where the terms that we once used would have been understood in times past, uh, that's no longer guaranteed. And we really have to approach teaching and even preaching uh, with a more fundamental attitude and really start building up that foundation, you know, brick by brick, because a lot of knowledge just simply cannot be assumed anymore. And certainly a lot of vocabulary cannot be assumed anymore. Well, and you also, as we mentioned earlier, have the, uh, the growing antagonism towards Christianity in America if only because it's no longer socially advantageous to be a Christian. And so just because you're in the community doesn't mean that anybody's going to pay attention to your church sign. They just won't care. And, you know, and, and you're know, going back to this a lot of times, too, it's, it's we will actually use the same terms, but we just have to take the time to define it in a way that people can understand. And really just getting to that point where people will listen to you define things or explain things is more difficult today than it has been for the reasons that you just mentioned and, and the reasons that we've mentioned earlier in the podcast. So it's it's very much like a Chinese water torture kind of thing. Uh, although I suppose that's a bad analogy, but uh, uh, or, or perhaps I should just say making bricks without straw. I don't know. And that's also a bad analogy because they still had to go get it from somewhere. It, the point is, it's a, uh, it's oftentimes a slower and difficult process because you're really building things up from nothing often. Yeah, so I, I just want to stress as we get close to the end here that we are not talking about what is commonly disparaged within Lutheran circles as church growth. Right. We are talking about a non-optional aspect of being a Christian and especially of being a Christian minister. And nobody is promising that you will have 3,000 souls turn to Christ all in the same day. We don't want to preclude that by any means, but we're not talking about assured results. We are talking about certain work which has been given to us, and it's the means by which people are moved through God's word from death to life spiritually. It's something that can be quali- that can be quantified often, correct? Yeah, we're not going to quantify that necessarily. All we're saying is that it must be done. And if it is not done, woe to us. And if it is done, there's massive joy for everyone, for the evangelist, for the sinner who repents, for the angels in heaven who rejoice over the sinner who repents. So this is all great stuff as you carry it out. And I just want to end on this kind of encouragement that as you do this, you will find fresh joy all the time in doing it. There's really nothing more exciting than seeing that light bulb go on, seeing people change, seeing people come to a knowledge that Christ is their all-sufficient Redeemer that they never had before, and a security that they never had before, and a trust and a quiet confidence they never had before. So there's really nothing more fun than doing the work of an evangelist. Amen. And indeed, who is sufficient for these things? This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. Expect to hear more about evangelism coming up in future episodes with Pastor Koontz and Pastor Heidi. I'm Willie Grills. Thanks for listening. God love you and God bless.